Let's pray. Father, that is, that is our desire, that is our hope, that this world would be filled with your glory and that it would be accomplished through the, spree, the speaking, the preaching, the singing, the, the talking, in any way, shape, or form, sharing of the truth of your word. As your word goes forth, it, it is what transforms us, Lord. It is what, what, what sets reality for us, as we learned this morning in Colossians, or that we might be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may approve of what is excellent. Lord, help us to, to think rightly, to have spiritual wisdom and understanding regarding our life, regarding you, regarding why we gather on Sundays, regarding why we do anything that we do. Uh, may it, we realize that it all has weight to it, Lord. Opportunities to be able to share the goodness, the glory of God presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you using us to accomplish these things. Um, help us, Lord, today to, to view ourselves rightly, to truly take into our hearts what it is that you say about us in your word today so that it might lead to true and lasting godly change in our lives. And we do ask and we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, that is, you know, sometimes we, we, we sing these songs right before the sermons, and I go, man, like that is, that is, that is the goal of what we want to happen, that God would speak in his word today. I imagine that you've gathered here this morning not desiring to hear anything from me, but to hear something from the word of God. And if that has been your desire, then I, then I trust and pray that that's what it is that God is going to do this morning if we're listening um, to what it is that he says to us. We're going to continue on in Romans chapter um, 6, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And we're going to be talking about the newness of life that we have in Christ. This is an overflow. I said last week, I've said for the past two weeks as we were in Romans 5, 12 through 21, that what he's doing is he's setting up the contrast between Adam and Christ, and so that the, the unbeliever is under Adam, of which if you are now a believer, you were once an unbeliever and you were in Adam, but if you are now a believer, now you are in Christ. And it's important to understand these spiritual realities and these divine declarations that God makes about the believer. You are you were under one head, now you are no longer under that head. You are now under another head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I gotta tell you, being under his head, his head, that's way better than being under the head of Adam. And he wants us to know that these things are true for us because as we then begin and then we embark on living this Christian life the way that God calls us to, there's all kinds of struggles that we face in doing so. Um, we, we realize, we come to this realization very quickly that even though I'm in Christ, there's all kinds of parts of me that are still alive and well, that are inconsistent with who Christ is. And how do I then grow? And how can I not be discouraged by all of the, the, the me-ness, the sinfulness that still abides, even though I'm under this new head. And, and that stuff can be discouraging. It can be very discouraging. It can be very concerning to people. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and doctrine out there regarding these issues. 
But that's why he front loads the, the idea of knowing that if you were in Christ, he is your head and he's going to continue to build into that this morning so that as we actually embark to live and grow into Christ's likeness and, and apply ourselves in very specific and particular ways in our lives to be more like Jesus, and we find that it's difficult to do so, we can go back and we remember, but I'm still in Christ. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Hallelujah. Like, praise the Lord that that's true for us. If you've been around me for any amount of time, you've probably heard me say something along the lines of, belief informs behavior. I used to say belief determines behavior, but I think the word determine is a little strong because I came to the realization in my own life that there's a lot of things that I believe to be true, that are good from the Bible, that I should do, and yet I failed to do it. And um, there are a lot of things that unbelievers believe in and yet are still capable of doing some kind of good in this world as well. So belief doesn't always determine behavior. Sometimes I act, my, I behave in a way that's inconsistent with what I believe to be true about myself and what the Bible says. But it certainly informs behavior. Your, what you believe will inform the way that you live. And that's part of the reason why he, I think he goes through here and labors this idea of knowing, that these, knowing what these spiritual realities are because in knowing these things, we might actually begin to live them out. And yeah, at times, struggling, but at other times, like willingly and joyfully and with great desire to live in a way that's consistent with how God sees me in his son. I want to live that way, but i got to know the right stuff. And, and I've said before, too, that just by knowing the right stuff doesn't all automatically lead to transformation. There's a lot of people out there that know a lot of the right stuff and yet aren't being, they're not transformed by the Spirit of God. So while believing the right stuff doesn't guarantee transformation, believing the right stuff is certainly a necessary component and an order for proper transformation. I was reading Francis Schaeffer's book, How Then Should We Live? And he says this in, this book, in his book, people are unique in the inner life of their mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. And again, he's reinforcing this idea that thoughts, right? We've heard this phrase, ideas have consequences. Thoughts have consequences. Belief will inform the way that you behave. And so we want to know, okay, well, what is the word? What would God have for us to believe this morning? And we see a great deal of that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So let's go ahead and read these verses together. And then I want to draw our attention to um, three things in particular that I see in this passage that I pray are, are helpful for us and, and honoring to the Lord. Beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He makes a lot of what I would call divine declarations in this passage. He's trying to shape and form the way that we think, the way that we see ourselves, these spiritual realities that have taken place within the believer so that you might think consistently. This is one of the reasons why I'm excited for us to get into the book of Colossians because Colossians, over and over again, you'll see these phrases and these words of understanding and mind and thinking over and over and over again. And essentially, the message of Colossians overall is right thinking should lead to right living. If you think rightly about the truth, right? And that's why he says in in chapter one, I pray that you would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why do you need to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, but so that you can think that way, and then in thinking that way, you evaluate and you interpret everything that way, and then you can discern of what is good and excellent and do those things and apply yourself to those things, and those things that are unprofitable or ungodly, you want to stay away from. You, as a believer, you now can discern what's good and excellent, and you want to be a part of those things. And this is certainly what's good and excellent for us to know, these things that God says about those of us who are no longer in Adam, but to, who are in Christ. He, he begins the passage by posing a question in verse 1 that helps keep the pendulum from swinging the other direction. We love people, human beings, a lot of times we love extremes. We're either way over here or way over here. Why? It's hard to live life in the middle. Like, it's hard to live life under tension of not being pulled one way too far or the other. But to keep a, 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 a mind of, of prudence, a mind of wisdom, a mind of self-control, this is difficult for us to do. But this is where I think the Lord would have us be. And we need to avoid extremes. He's already talked about the extreme of legalism and addressing the Jews and how they worship the law of God and it created this legalism within us. But what lies on the other end of the spectrum? Licentiousness, right? Like complete and total disregard for, for morality. Oh, well, the law has been fulfilled. We don't need, the law has no place in the life of the believer anymore. You're, you know, don't worry, brother, we're sin increased, grace increases all the more. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the question that he's asking in verse one of chapter six. He knows, right? God knows our human condition. We don't want to be over here. We want to be way over here. And then we don't like this, and so we swing back way over here. But he asks the question then, well, then what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if me sinning is then gives God an opportunity to express his grace in my life and his grace brings him glory, then logically it must be that if I sin more, he will show more grace and he will be glorified more. Is that the way that a believer should live? And obviously he's answers that question very quickly in in verse 2. 
By no means. This is not the way that a Christian should live. Um, We see this kind of thinking already earlier in chapter 3. Right? In chapter 3, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Then you drop down to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. So he, he's, he's, addressing, he's, he's addressing issues and questions that are, could be logical conclusions of what it is that he's already taught. Only here, he seems to do a little bit more work in helping tease out um, this issue of how we need to think about ourselves and know what is true so that we might live properly. And we want to look at three things in particular. The three things that the believer should, should know, three ways in which we should think about ourselves that we see in the text. Number one, that we have been fastened in death to Christ. And we see this in verses two through four. We've been fastened in death to Christ. Secondly, what we'll see, we have been freed in our union with Christ. We've been freed in our union with Christ. That's verses five through seven. And then lastly, we should be focused on our life in Christ. Focused on our life in Christ, verses eight through 11. Firstly, as we see in verses two through four, we've been fastened in death to Christ. Usually being fixated on the past is not a good thing. But here, this is a good thing for us, to be fixated, to be fastened upon a, 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 a reality, a spiritual reality that has taken place for us in the past, at conversion, when we came to know Christ, so that it might then color the way that we live and we think right now. And if you just think about it in three large chunks, we've died, we've been united, and we have life. It's kind of the way that he lays these verses out. If you've died in Christ, you've been united to Christ, and you have life in Christ. But he, he explains in a little bit more detail what that actually looks like. He says in verse 2, answering the question, are we to continue in sin, or are we to continue to live in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? You as a Christian, how can you, how can you continue on? How, do you, how can you continue to live in sin if you have died to sin? It's kind of the way that First John talks about walking in the light or walking in the darkness. You know, as, as basically two broad categories. You're either walking in the light in Christ or you're either walking in the darkness. We, again, we learned in Colossians 1 this morning, right? You have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Craig said that this is a spiritual replacement for us. I think that's a wonderful way of understanding that and putting that. There's been a spiritual replacement. I can look around, like when I came to know Christ, and I imagine when many of you came to know Christ, not much changed about you physically. I woke up the, sa- I woke up the next day, I looked the same, I was in the same house, I was in the same room, I was in the same bed. Everything around me physically looked the same, but oh, how it was different in my mind. Because there has been this spiritual replacement, the spiritual reality. I had now eyes to see things differently, like not perfectly, 
I was talking with one of the brothers uh, probably a couple months ago, and I feel like I was the man that had his eyes washed by Jesus the first time. And I'm like, I, I see, but everyone looks, men look like trees. I can't see completely yet. Things are still blurry. I need you to continue to wash my eyes so that I continue to have clearer spiritual wisdom and insight into this life. And though I may not have been able to see as clear as I wanted to then, I, I had eyes to see. And I was alive in Christ because I had died. There's this, there, is this, there was this death that was absolutely essential, necessary to have, to undergo before union with Christ could be made and life could, with Christ could be had. I've died to sin. He's talked about sin um, in terms of its power, its reign, its authority. We saw this in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Sin has been described as its power, its authority, its reign in our lives. So when he says we have died to sin, he's talking about you have died to the power of sin. The sin's authority and power in your life has been decisively broken because you are now in Christ. The penalty of sin has been completely paid. The power of sin has been decisively broken. We are still yet awaiting for the presence of sin to compete, completely be done away with. But he wants us to know that these are realities for us. And he uses this new terminology that he's not used in Romans yet um, regarding being dead to sin. And so you think of the question, like, how is it that I am dead to sin and thus um, no longer to live in it? Um, how am I to see myself dead to sin and therefore it not leading to me continuing to live in it? And he goes on to explain to us what exactly that means and looks like in verse 3 and 4. To be dead to sin is to be baptized into Christ. Specifically, is to be baptized into his death. He says, he goes on an explanation, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we're kinda, we'll save um, the end of verse 4 until our third point. But just look at all the ways that he described, right? You have died in verse 2, death in verse 3. Death in verse 4, died again in verse 4. He wants us to understand that there has been a, a death that has taken place in us. And this, again, this is answering the question, how can we no longer continue to live in sin, have my life dominated by sin, be enslaved to sin? That's what he's wondering. And it's because you have died in Christ, first and foremost, fundamentally. Christ's physical death, burial, and resurrection are a picture of what he um, uses to explain to us what happens in our lives at conversion. You've died, you've been buried, you've been resurrected. And we know what that's like because we see those things occurring to our Lord. What's interesting is I was reading through this in verses 3 and 4, all of these things are made as statements of fact. As you read through there, He's saying, if you were in Christ, this is factually what has happened to you. You need to know this. 
It's not like this is what could happen or might happen or is being worked out in you currently. He states it in a way of that this is a present reality in your life because it's already happened in the past. You have been baptized into Christ, into his death. You were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you, you too might walk in newness of life. Which is that walking in the newness of life is a continual progression. But he goes, you need to know that you've died. If you're under Christ's headship, you've died in him. Galatians 3.27, Paul would put it like this. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To be baptized into Christ is to, is to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I mean, in the, new, in the first century world, to undergo, to be spiritually renewed and baptized, to be born again. That's what he's talking about. To be baptized into Christ is a spiritual reality that's taken place. You have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. You are born again. You got saved. Those, those terms that we use. In the first century church, for someone to undergo that spiritual transformation and then to not undergo the physical waters of baptism was like unthought of. If there has been this inner change in my life, why would I hesitate at all to outwardly announce my, my, my pub, publicly my union with him? It's so weird, I think, in, in America that there is this like, okay, I come to know Christ, I profess him, but you know, I want to wait to be baptized this is really like an unbiblical way of thinking. Like if you have been baptized into Christ and there's a spiritual reality taking place, there should be this desire to publicly identify with him through the waters of physical baptism, which we'll be doing in a week from today. It's a public proclamation. I want everybody to know. That's why the church is always invited. And I always say, invite your family, your friends, anybody that you want to know and publicly proclaim to them, I am now a new creation in Christ. I have died with him. And I want everybody to know that. I have been buried. The old man has been buried. And I have put on Christ. Which then leads us to our second point of being freed in our union with Christ. In verses 5 and 6, he uses terms like united in his death, crucified with him. United in his death, he, he speaks of it in terms of, again, this is something that happened in the past of which has ongoing effects for you. At one point, you were united with him. When you died and you were buried into Christ and baptized into Christ, at that moment, you were united with Christ and you continue to remain united with Christ. You have this union, you have this participation with him. And it leads, and it, it, the result of that is a crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm a partaker of his death. I'm a partaker of his crucifixion. In that the old man has been killed and done away with. In verse 5, he makes a statement regarding us, and then he makes a, a future promise as well. He actually does this in verse 2, in verse 5, and in verse 8. In verse 2, he says, By no means, how can we who have died, past, continue to still live in it, moving on into the future? In verse 5, he'll say it like this, For if we have been united with him in his death, like his, something that has already happened, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's a, a future reality for us, but even now, that future reality breaks into our current lives. I'm supposed to currently think of myself as being crucified with Christ and a partaker in the resurrection. The promise that he gives to us is as good as, there, as, good as it gets, it's as sure as it can be. If he says you've died with Christ and by dying with Christ you will partake of the resurrection, you better believe that you will partake of the resurrection with him. In some ways because spiritually I've died and already been resurrected. There's already this new me alive. Being able to discern things spiritually and pursue things spiritually and live for Christ. Like want to read my Bible, want to pray, want to come to church, want to do things that matter to God. Like how do I now have a desire to do that? Because I'm alive. I've been resurrected in Christ. And that resurrection in me guarantees, again, the future bodily resurrection of which my desire that I want right now to to live for him and love him and glorify him will be all that I know. And guess what? It's going to be all that you know too. Like the day in which our bodily resurrection is finally united with the spiritual side of us that's already been resurrected is the day in which we will partake of, of, of eternal glory and bliss and happiness with him. We, and, and the spiritual resurrected component of us says, yes, yes, I want that. And so then we continue to, to, to apply ourselves in living that way and, and working that out in our lives. He says in verse 6 and 7, we know, we know. Again, this is a church that in Rome that he's never visited. But he's speaking as if, what I know, you know. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned realities. He, he, when I came to know Christ, I didn't know like all of the, this. You know, I didn't know this terminology, this language. Like if someone, you know, the, the, when I became a brand new believer, did you know you were buried into Christ, into his death? You were baptized into Christ. You were resurrected with Christ. I would have said, I don't know. I don't even, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, all I know is like, I used to love sin and now I love Jesus more. That's, the, that's how I thought of life initially as a new believer. But he's describing to us what actually takes place, like theologically within the, the person when they're converted. And, and so that we might know that we have this intimate union with Christ and dying to our sin, we've not been united to Christ. And if we've been united in his death, we will certainly be united with him in this resurrection. He says, our, verse six, he says, our old self was crucified. Your old placement under Adam, crucified in Christ. That's how dead your old position in Adam is. I know we, 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 we struggle with still living like the old person in Adam. But what he's telling us in this text is that, that man is dead. He was crucified with Christ. This is a divine declaration. You are no longer under Adam. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And you have been united with him. Our old self was crucified. It's, again, it's written in what we would call the passive sense, meaning someone else has done it. God crucified you. You didn't crucify yourself in Christ. God crucified you in Christ. And he united you 
to Christ as well. You think about what it is that God has done for us in our salvation, this death. How is it that I have died to Christ, been buried into Christ, been crucified with Christ and united with Christ? God did it, and he did it all. And it's finished. Forever from him and I, you and him, to be united to him inseparably. You can see how this plays itself out in Romans 8, right? Like, who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing physical, nothing spiritual, nothing. Once you've been united to Christ, there's been such a, a tight weld created there that it is inseparable. Nothing can fracture or shatter your union with Christ. I pray that this is, this is helpful for you to know to be encouraged so that you can begin to live and apply yourself in this way. In order that you've been crucified with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no, so that we, um, would no longer be enslaved to sin. Been crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Being enslaved to sin is something that Paul would go on and later in chapter 6 to say that has actually something that's already, been, that's already taken place. As a believer, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Look with me in verse chapter 6. We're going we're gonna to jump ahead here in, verse, in chapter 6. But I want, us to, I want us to see this connection to what he's saying in, in, in our verse um, 6 here. Chapter 6, verse uh, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. At least four verses there later on in chapter six, he makes this definitive claim that you have been set free from the enslavement of sin. Now what he says in verse six is that the body of sin being brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin being brought to death depends upon no longer being enslaved to sin. And since we are no longer enslaved to sin, the body of death has already been brought to nothing. He's, he's speaking of, he, he, again, he's wanting us to know that the old self was crucified, the body, of sin has, the body of sin has already been brought to nothing, and that you are no longer enslaved to sin. And he makes it even clearer in verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That word there, set free, every other place in Romans it's used, it's translated as justified. You sh we should read that for the one who has died has been 
justified from sin. Again, he's wanting us to know that these are, these are, this is a divine declaration regarding your spiritual condition and placement in Christ. He's, God, he, we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to know that these things are true for us. You know what this helps us do? It helps us answer the, it helps, if you, if you ever struggle with the question, can I change? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Why? How do I know that to be true? Because you've been crucified with Christ. Because you've been united with Christ. We can't say, oh, it's just who I am. Like you can't say, you can't excuse sin with the statement, that's just who I am. Now, I'm not saying that everything changes in the snap of a finger. I'm not saying it's not hard work to apply. I'm just saying we got to think rightly about these things. That you have died, you've been crucified, and you have been united with him. And you are no longer enslaved to sin, and the body of sin has been brought to nothing. Your, Your position under Adam has been brought to nothing. It's been disintegrated into nothing. You stand only and solely and wholly, completely now in Christ. If you are a believer and you have been set free, again, he uses this term regarding describing a past reality that has ongoing effects. You were set free. You were justified then. When you came to know Christ, you were justified and you continue to stand justified in his sight. And we'll see why. We've already been talking about it, but he makes it explicitly clear for us at the end of verse 11. It brings us to our third point. We are to be focused on our life in Christ. How can you stand justified? How can you stand free? Do you feel free? Do you always feel free? Do you always feel like, yeah, my body, body of sin brought to nothing? Dead to sin? Totally. You feel that way all the time? Like, I don't. How do I know that these things are true? Well, let me just, I'm going to give you the answer now. The end of verse 11 read the whole verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He could have just put a period, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But he wants us to know that it's in Christ. This is not, you're you're not free from sin because you freed yourself, because you feel free. The body of sin hasn't been brought to nothing because you killed it and you brought it to nothing and you feel like the body of sin has been brought to nothing. You are not enslaved to sin because you you, you took on a new master and you fight sin and you no longer feel enslaved to sin. These things are true for us as they are true for us in Christ. And if you are in Christ, they are most certainly true for you and I. We have to know these things. Yes, I know that there are inconsistencies with what I know and believe and the way I behave. I'm trying to allow the truth 
I'm not living my life based upon my feelings and what, how I'm interpreting things and the way that I see things. I'm viewing my life through the truth of the lens of the word of God. And if he says it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It's true for me. And I'm thankful that it's true for me because guess what? If it weren't fixed in Christ, I'd undo it all. And so would you. But because it's fixed in Christ and his completed work. Completed. He's like no longer in the process of doing the work. It's completed and it's finished. And because, you, because it's finished, you can know most certainly it is finished for you and I. And that's his whole argument in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. You can live because your life is in Christ. And you need to be focused on the life that you have in Christ. You have been, you've died. You've been fastened in death to Christ. You've been freed in your union with Christ. And so that you can focus on the life that you have in Christ. Look at how many times in verses 8 through 11 he says live or alive. Verse 8, so that you may live, also live with him. Verse 10, but the life he, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He wants us to know that our life as a believer is permeated with life. Do you feel like you're, you're alive? Spiritually, that you're alive. I fear that many Christians don't feel and don't think of themselves as being alive, regenerated in Christ. But walk around just like withering away. I'm not saying life is easy, and I'm not saying there aren't seasons, and we do struggle, for sure. But how often do you, when you're in the midst of a hardship, which thoughts dominate your line of thinking, how hard and difficult things are and how much you want to be out of what you're in, or the fact that you are alive in Christ and all of these things are true for you. If you're anything like me, circumstances are just, they're right here. I gotta go, no, get that out of here. I'm looking to, I need to put my eyes on Christ and see him. He says these wonderful things. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, there's this statement of fact with this future reality. If I have died with Christ, that's already taken place, we believe, right? We know, we believe that we will also live with him. Why? How do I know that that's true? Verse 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him, the text says. So he's emphasizing the lack of authority that death has over Christ so that, no, so that us knowing being in Christ, death has no dominion over us either. D- death for the believer is simply ushering me into the presence of the Almighty for eternity. You know how many people out there who don't know Christ fear death? And the believer, we have no fear of death because Christ has died, he's overcome, death no longer has dominion over him, and he no longer, death no longer has dominion over us either. 
For the death he died, he died to sin. Who, whose sin? Certainly not his. The death he died, he died to sin. Whose? Mine and yours. He has decisively and authoritatively died to sin for our sin, our penalty. Our, he has paid our penalty. And his life now, his living now, goes on to prove that the payment was made and that he continues to live and help us. So we approach the throne of grace boldly so that we might find help in our time of need, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. He lives to intercede for his people. Think of Jesus has this conversation regarding death with Martha in John 24, or excuse me, John 11. And he says, he has this conversation after Lazarus, her brother's already died, and he says this, and I was thinking about this passage this week. Martha says to Jesus in verse 24 of John 11, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's, he's bringing her to this position of what are the ultimate realities of life and death? And if you are alive in me, you will never die. Not, not death due to the penalty of sin. Yeah, physically, you're going to go. You're going to die. They're going to put you in a tomb or in a grave or something like that. But that is not death for you. Because Christ has died. You've already died in Christ. You've already been united to him so that you might have life and live in him. And then he, he reinforces this reality in verse 11 with a command. All right, he's talking about this, the death that Christ experienced, our union with him, our life in him. And then he says in verse 11, so you also, also with who? With Christ. Just as this is true for Christ, you need to know that it's true for you. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider. That's a command. It's imperative to, to, to stop and think and logically conclude that if you are in Christ, all of this is true for me. And this is why I'm saying that belief informing behavior is such an important concept to grasp. Because you need to think, you need to stop and think and to believe of what it is that he is saying to every single Christian. This isn't just for Christians in Rome. This is Christians, for Vacaville, Christians in Vacaville. Everyone who is in Christ, he needs to, he's saying, you need to know, stop and consider. Have you ever taken a moment to, have you ever taken a moment to just stop what you're doing and to, to, to meditate and to think through, logically, through an issue? It's what he wants us to do. 
Like, don't rush through this. Oh, E-E-E-E, got all this truth, got all this truth. Okay, church is over, off to the next thing. Like, stop for a moment and just think. Consider what it is that he's saying. Like, and who is speaking? God himself revealing his truth to us for us to know that these things are true. To live so we might think this way and live this way. So that as your time, as your day is drawing near to go be with the Lord, you might know that this is true for you. You wake up tomorrow morning and, you might, and you're going to work, you might know that this is true for you. i got to think a completely new way. I can't think along the lines of, of, of what my company wants me to think. I'm not living in that world. I live in a completely new world. I'm not under the world and in Adam. I'm in Christ. And how am I spiritually called to rethink everything around me and to live differently as well. I think about um, the way that this, and this is as we're preparing to, to move towards the communion table. I was thinking of the practical implication of this in my life. Um, I was thinking of how it applies in particular to me and you know, the things that obviously, the things that I struggle with, who I am and, um, you know, my besetting sins and issues. And it's tremendously helpful and encouraging for me to view them through a new light and what it is that Christ offers to me. It would all, it was also incredibly helpful for me to think of it in terms of just how, like, how a text like this helps shape the way that I approach the scripture and read and understand the scriptures as a whole. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and he was using the example of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says this. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hearts, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And the, wake, and the takeaway that that guy had was, you need to be telling people to live this way because unless they live like this, they won't see the Lord. And I'm like, mm, you're setting these people up for failure. You know that if they walk away thinking that the only person who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't, does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully and that that's what they must do in order to get there, they're going to fail. You know that this text is not talking about them. It, says some, it has something to say for them if they're in Christ, but that's not them. Like, this, how God sees me in Christ informs the way that I go back and I read and I understand the Scripture. This, who ascends to the holy hill and who's going to stand in his holy place, this is a description of Jesus. He's the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. He's the only one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He's the only one that does that. So that while that text is not describing me, it is for me. How? Because I'm in Christ. I get to go. I get to ascend the, whole, the hill. I get to stand in the holy place. Not why? Not because I have clean hands and a pure heart, but because Christ had clean hands and a pure heart, and by virtue of union with him, I get to be there. You see the way that it changes how you read the scriptures. Any, and I could, I could point to you dozens 
of texts where this is what is described. Read Psalm 15. Read Psalm 15 this week. And you tell me, you set yourself, you set yourself out to live that way. If you can do it. It's a description of Christ and what is yours by virtue of being in Christ. He has worked it all. That's the reason why we come to the communion table. This is not a reflection of how good I've been this week. It's a reflection of how good God has been to me despite me. I come to the communion table. We do this every week because this is a place of worship. I'm not partaking of my body, my blood. Y'all aren't looking to me. <laughs> you know, we're looking to Christ together, equally. You and I, regardless, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how mature you are or how immature you are in the Lord. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with him or how short you've been walking with him. If you are in him, we are looking to him with equal degree of need. And so this is a time of worship. This is the time to partake. I, I take that cracker and I take that juice and I hold in my hand. The only reason why I get to go to the holy hill and stand in his holy presence is because Christ has accomplished it on my behalf. I'm coming in under the train of his robe. I'm covered by his train of right, trail of righteousness, not my own. And does it mean then that I want to assert myself in ways, practical ways, to live a life that's pure and holy to him? Absolutely. But that's out of an overflow of who I am in Christ, not to get in Christ. So while as we turn to the table, the elements are behind you, this is a time of worship. It's a time of examination. It's a time of confession. It is a time of assurance. Assurance of pardon as well. See, if you are here and you are visiting today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, we do invite for you to partake. But if you do not, just let the elements be and consider what it is that you're standing on. How are you going to ascend to that holy hill? Christ is the only way. The elements are on the back tables. You can get those, return back to your seat for some time of prayer and meditation and we will partake of the communion elements together shortly.